Welcome back to State of the Art, the podcast that sits at the intersection of art and technology. <laughs> it's Gabe. I haven't been inside for a long time. Can you tell? But maybe we could use a new theme song for this podcast. If you have an idea or you are a musician and want to you know, quickly crank something out for us to play, I'd love to hear what you could come up with. It doesn't have to be super you know, technical sounding or anything like that, just because we are an art and technology podcast. Um, but yeah, send me, send me an idea at Gabe at thestateoftheart.org, or you can follow us at State of the Art on Instagram or Twitter. And speaking of social media, we actually have a new intern for our show, Abby Asmus, who's been helping us out a lot with social media lately. So if you want to say hi to Abby, just hit her up on Instagram and say, hey, what's up, Abby? But we appreciate all the work she's been doing for the podcast so far. Uh, today, we have an amazing guest, Mona Kasra as our guest. She's an assistant professor of digital media at the University of Virginia and a new media artist and an interdisciplinary researcher. Her work is incredible and spans all sorts of different technologies and different concepts. Uh, We talk about selfie rallies, which if you don't know what a selfie rally is, you might actually be in the middle of one right now if you go look on Instagram. We talk about the history of selfie rallies and how they factor into some of her work. We also talk about capturing nature in 360 video and VR and how that kind of changes our time scale when we experience nature in different ways. Uh, So it's a really exciting episode, and I want to go ahead and welcome Mona Kasra to the podcast. Hey, Mona. How have you been? Good. How are you? I'm good. Hanging in there, I guess, right? (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Where are you right now? I'm in San Francisco. Oh, San Francisco. So I'm here for another couple of weeks and then head back to Virginia. So Mona, maybe you can start by just telling us how you got involved with the world of new media art. Uh, I know you're a professor as well. We're going to talk about that later in the episode. But was there a specific moment in your life that you got interested in digital art? Such a good question. So I started, I, I was born and raised in Iran, and I was very interested in art in general, since I was very young, um, and you know, I, I, the the first introduction to the world of art for me was like painting and drawing and that kind of thing. But then, for my BA, I um, started uh, visual communication and graphic design, and um, that's around like that was. Uh, when kind of digital design was being introduced, especially back there in Iran, and the, you know, Photoshop was new, Illustrator, that kind of thing. So that was the first introduction I had with the world of computers and computer arts. And mm. I was super fascinated. When I moved to, I, I um, immigrated uh, to the United States in early 2000. Okay. And uh, that I started uh, doing an MFA in video digital arts, and that was like completely like an eye-opening experience for me. I, you know, that was the first time I was introduced to the world of feminism and like feminist arts, even, you know, visual arts and visual culture, video artists that were doing such fantastic work in the 70s. And I was just sold. And the idea (laughs) of uh, being able to, to tell your own stories and figuring out even your identity and your background and video just totally allowed me it I created this space that I felt really safe very creative about it uh, like to express myself in ways that I've never done before uh, until that point like and what what were you what kind of works were you making so back then thinking uh, a lot had to do with identity as a female as a, as a woman growing up in the war um, and right around the revolution time in Iran and as, as an immigrant even though then it was really hard for me to even understand what that meant you know because as a very young when you come in like early 20s and you're just like thrown into a new culture as much as you prepared yourself for it it's just it's very different and you have to there are a lot of struggles as a especially Middle Eastern immigrant in this country. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I just found art as a way to express like issues of sexuality, like um, women right, women's rights. And that kind of led to um, just this engagement with uh, the digital art form. I started teaching around that, that like a uh, few years after I uh, um, came here and I was doing my MFA and then I did my PhD in arts and technology and emerging media. And that's around the time where social media was booming. And I started my PhD at University of Texas in Dallas, um, which was a practice-based arts in uh, aesthetics, uh, 
um, major, I started thinking I'm just going to be only making art. And uh, that uh, soon proved to not be the case because I got very interested in like the notion of media studies and mm. uh, social media studies. So and I kind of uh, focused a lot in like understanding our visual culture uh, in light of uh, iPhones and uh, selfies and photographs, the power and the politics beyond the images, how we use, uh, you know, it's very funny because the selfie, the the challenge accepted selfie campaign is going on the past week. Right. And it reminds me of like in 2009, that was one of the first, that was one of the first um, uh, self or image-based campaigns that uh, started with the Iranian green movement after Nadar Sultan, that woman who got shot as a protester in front of the camera after the Iran election uh, protest in 2009. Um, that was one of the first rallies online that took place. And that got me really interested. And that basically was base of a dissertation work for me for the years to come. So uh, the idea of thinking about media not one uh, in and one end thinking about experimenting with it and using it as a creative form or create creative way um and then uh, on the other way like thinking about how new media changes the way we think do create and uh, i i'm it's very kind of based also in like McLuhan um theory is that with every new media um we we change we just allows for new ways of dealing with the world even com uh, feeling yourself uh what is it like perceiving yourself in um, interacting with the world around you so um that has been the trajectory it hasn't been a very for me it hasn't been like oh i just knew from the beginning what i'm doing and i just kind of ended everything um kind of led to another thing. <laughs> well, you're not alone there. Definitely almost every artist I've talked to has said that they didn't start off wanting to be a new media artist. No. <laughs> and neither did I. But since you I, since you brought up the idea of selfie, can you explain what a selfie rally is? Because I want to touch on specific works that you've made that uh, fall under this umbrella, I guess, of selfie rallies. Absolutely. So um, again, like back in, uh, right after the iPhones especially uh, had those... Um, cameras that you could take your selfies, especially these notions of image-based rallies began to flourish online. You know, we had the, uh, even when the marriage equality, like that was the 2012, 2013, that like the, the red, uh, equal signs, mm -hmm. right. That, that would, that, that kind of populated the internet. Um, it, they became these, these selfie images, it, even though uh, there was a lot of uh, discussion since the beginning about, oh, these are narcissistic, these are just very self-involved, there's no good that comes out of them. They allowed for um, uh, different forms of personal expression and civic participation and political advocacy. Uh, that that's very unique to this like social media uh, moment for us because. First, it allowed us to um, show our face as if we are on the street with other people um, using our phones and using our social media platforms and be able to protest and, and be in solidarity with others outside our geographical boundaries, kind of like a transnational protest mm. in, uh, in a way. And allowed us to take a stance, like as simple as it was as taking a stance and like uh, coming together and doing something in against or in favor of some, uh, some cause. And in the beginning of, uh, you know, social media and Internet, there was a lot of uh, good that was coming out of that, obviously. And then we just we, we yeah, it's like anything else. Technology is neither good or nor bad. <laughs> it's just that it is the way we use it. But uh, it was very exciting. It was very wonderful to see like how uh, online images uh, are changing our political structure and culture. There were places where you couldn't go on the street to protest because it was dangerous. It's still there are places that are that are dangerous. Sure. And at that point, you could have your image um, even, you know, uh, blurred or however you wanted to compose, but kind of have a show your um 
solidarity with a cause. So it was really powerful, very interesting. And I, I still think there is a lot of value to it. And there's still, uh, it's, it's pretty powerful. It's just that, you know, things with uh, internet became a lot more commercialized and, you know, market driven. And then bad actors also are involved more and more. So uh, it definitely becomes uh, a challenge. But I tried to, so as I was reflecting on this notion of like selfie rally and um, coming together and like the connective action that happens through images and what uh, the meaning of image, uh, what that becomes, is it just the image you see or is it because of the accumulation of the uh, images that populate online and, you know, all the sea of profile pictures, perhaps, that you see uh, for a cause. Uh, does that change the, the way we consume images? Uh, what, what, where is the power? Is the power in the image? Is the power in, like, posting the image? Is the power in, like, coming together and doing this as a, as a, as a big body? Um, well, and also, and, how much does context matter for those images, right? I think that, we're sort of in the middle of that now where there are selfie rallies going on where people aren't even aware they're part of a rally or a political movement. So true. So true. And, you know, th those started um, pretty, you know, early on again in like 2013, 2014. Mm -hmm. Those things started to flourish. And as as uh, um, what were examples of those? Like um, initially, so, you know, there was a no makeup uh, selfie back in 2014. Uh, although that that campaign raised like millions of dollars uh, for cancer uh, research, which mm. is fascinating. I mean, that shows you how like all of a sudden there is another role in like raising money and all these things that come come out. That's that's uh, you know, it's not as simple as just like I'm going to take a stand. Um, Maybe we can talk actually about one of your pieces that has a selfie rally involved. The One of your works called It's Misogyny That Is Humiliating. Can you describe sort of how this piece came about and how selfie rallies are uh, employed in this work? Absolutely. So this is this is a great example. This is my favorite, one of my favorites, like in, in image based uh, rallies um, that uh, took place um, back in, I want to say 2013. And um, this was in protest against a judge's order who sentenced in, um, a couple of Iranian Kurdish male convicts to parade through the city in uh, female clothing and female attire. Um, and um, some of the bystanders took pictures and this was like a red uh, outfit for that Kurdish women would wear. And the idea, I guess, for this judge or for, for this um, verdict was to um, shame the convicts because obviously there's nothing more humiliating than you know being paraded on the street in red clothing mm. or female clothing. And immediately after the bystanders uh, disseminated these eyewitness photographs online, there was a storm of um, responses um, by, uh, selfie responses by Kurdish men who like as an act of like outcry they began wearing their um, mothers their daughters or their wives uh, sisters uh, outfits and taking a selfie with you know this that outfit and knowing the you know the gender roles how defined it is in uh, that culture the, the ideas around um, femalehood and malehood, it's just, it was super powerful. And what happened was it, um, it was very grassroots um, and it all, a lot of Kurdish men from around the world, from various parts of the world, all of a sudden started posting within like two weeks or something. It became just this big campaign. And the idea for them was that uh, they wanted to condemn that misogynistic mindset that, you know, humiliation for a man is just, you know, that 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 ultimate one is right. for them to be a woman. And what was what I loved about that campaign was, first of all, every image was fascinating. The fact that the the courage that the different ages, the diversity of like it wasn't just like oh I'm young and I you know I just want to it it was not like that it was like very much um, grassroots and very passionate and they they were all posting this with like um, hashtags of courtmen for equality 
And being a woman is not a way, like the translation would have been like being a woman is not a tool to humiliate or punish someone. And that misogyny, it's the misogyny that's humiliating, which I chose that for the title of the piece. And um, so I started collecting these images. A lot of these rallies over the years, I collected them as part of like also writing about them. But um, I, I found it very... Um, uh, appropriate to create GIF animations with these images. So I would just download the hundreds and hundreds of, of these photographs and um, they would be these uh, GIF animations that would blend together. They would create these um, really interesting kind of even halos of the act uh, of taking a selfie uh, with that outtire. There was not so much attention in one photograph, just the same way that we consume these rallies online. Um, it's about the, the accumulation that happens. And, um, and you know, you, it's, it was like fast pacing. It's just like kind of automated uh, GIF of these going uh, together and like kind of being blended. And that's uh, those... You know, and people would respond to them um, in very interesting ways, like just the idea of witnessing the morphing that happens in front of your eyes uh, with all these images um, can be pretty uh, overwhelming. One of one of the other ways that like the speed of the morphation that happened <laughs> was the like a lot of times these campaigns are extremely short lived, like they would come in and before we know it, they're gone because something else comes up or, you know, there are so many more images that are being posted that, um, you know, it just these become uh, submerged into the sea of new images that came along. But um, at, at the moment, they're very powerful. And the idea that you can actually associate with and relate to and feel like you are um, with a bigger wave is, is pretty powerful. And is this piece, um, it's exhibited on, it's a screen-based work, I'm guessing? It was a screen-based work, yeah. It was actually, it was also a part of a couple of online exhibitions that, that took place as, as like basically web screen, web-based uh, web work. And, and in the gallery space, it would just be a web screen or sometimes a video of it. Are any of the hash associated hashtags projected or um, no. on the screen at the same time? No, it would only be the title. I see. And so yeah. do, when this is exhibited in a show, do people have some sort of context for this movement as well? Or is it more about kind of discovering the movement through the work? I think that's a very good question. So so it depends. Sometimes, like with this particular world uh, work, the images, uh, I don't think there was any image that um, was downloaded that actually had like any text. Like that. that's actually part of the beauty of these self selfie um, rallies um, when they're effective is that, you know, there's not, there's no textual um, exchange that happens. There's no word that's being, it's just by the nature of looking into the camera and being and just like, you know, put, uh, placing your stance in a way and making something that's invisible, visible, um, you're, you're becoming part of a bigger cause. Um, which, which is uh, what makes these very interesting, uh, I think, when there are uh, when they are effective. Uh, but so, so this, the title and the description basically is something that you know you you either need to read later or um, they, they definitely have that same that kind of look of the sel selfie. Mm -hmm. So um, taken from different sources. Not, yeah, yeah, they're just basically accumulation of those. So um, it's hard. It's not very hard to, um, you know, confuse where the images come from. You know, immediately these are selfies, and by just the, just of like how they're all very similar but very different. I think it's totally as a viewer, you would notice that this is a campaign. And so, are you still working on selfie rally pieces uh, now, or are you? Where is your work taking you these days? No, no, I, I am not actually, because partly is I got a little disappointed about that whole status of our media and social media and internet. Yeah, <laughs> it's not, a bleak landscape these days. Yes. <laughs> Sorry, what did you I say? I said it's a little bleak sometimes these days. I know, I know. So I, I, I'm not, and I moved uh, my work more into uh, immersive media. So um, I, I teach at the University of Virginia, and I'm, I've been very interested in um, part of the one of the strands of my my work is um, exploring the confluence of 
performance in new media mm-hmm. and also like thinking about what the new pos- aesthetic possibilities of uh, immersing uh, audiences in stories or uh, environments are. So the past few years, I got super interested in the possibilities or the affordances of immersive media. And, you know, in uh, I, I kind of I've been working on various aspects of that in some bigger projects with some co- some of my colleagues. And by immersive media, do you mean like VR, AR kind of mixed reality yeah, formats? VR, yes, yeah, 360 um, storytelling and VR. Yeah, like the interactive VR experiences. Yeah, I had a chance to look at uh, some video footage of your piece dwelling in the enfolding, which is really beautiful. Can you tell us a little bit about how that piece came about? Absolutely. So um, there it's. So let me just maybe take us back for a second in terms of what I was interested in, how that led to uh, that project. So this is a project that we just finished with my colleague um, and com- really wonderful composer, Matthew Birdner. And um, we were supposed to be to actually showcase this. Uh, and because of the pandemic, it got post- postponed. But um I've been uh, very interested in how um, how we can recreate, how we can uh, create the notion of being live or feeling live in um, in environments, whether they're performative or they're not, through these three hundred and sixty spatial audio visual environments. I took a um, I, I, I went on a residency a couple of years ago to Iceland. It was a short residency, but that was the first time I feel like in my adult life that I was surrounded by nature, by the solitude of it, by the quietness of it. Have you ever been to Iceland or like these types? I'd love to go. Yeah, I'd love to go someday. Yeah. I mean, it's just one of those things that you prepare yourself for that level of, you know, being immersed in this nature that's so much bigger than you. And it's just not enough, especially I feel like I had I had to live a very busy life in terms of growing up in a very busy um, city and just, you know, with the commotions of war and revolution and stuff. And then when I came here as an immigrant, life was very busy. You have to just kind of struggle and go through. So my my relationship to nature has never been um, very deep. Right? Yeah, well, so, I am with you there. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I don't know if I've ever been immersed in nature either, you know, growing up in Los Angeles. Yeah. So when I went to um, Iceland um, and I took, you know, my uh, 360 gear and like spatial audio recorders and everything. And um, I, w- I, I was just so taken by the vastness and the, the quietness of the space. And, and it was very humbling, very confusing and also very frightening. Like I actually find being so alone with the nature, with, with any type of like na- natural space where it doesn't really care where, whether you are, whether you're live or not, mm. it doesn't matter. Um, so I found it very, very frightening and interesting and very magnificent in, in a way. So I talked to Matthew, whose work, he's a Alaskan born composer, sound artist, and does a lot of like eco acoustic uh, uh, work. Uh, while I was there, and I'm like, this is fascinating. I feel like, you know, your work focuses on using sound from these type of environments. We should do something. And I'm, my work is very inherently, especially the bigger projects, are collaborative. I love interdisciplinary projects where we can come in from different aspects and think and do things that perhaps personally we can't, you know, accomplish. And there is a process that is um, very interesting in, in, in interdisciplinary collaborative work. So um, I, I first thought I'm going to use the footage that I'm capturing in Iceland and we're going to just do something with that. And more and more we realized, you know, like um, we need to both of us have to experience the space and both of us have to kind of respond to the space and create something out of a shared experience. And Matthew. So, so just to Alaska, back up, you yeah. went you went in. Uh, you went to Iceland and you weren't sure exactly what you were going to create on this residency. No, you no. brought like a 360 camera to capture the environment. Absolutely. So I usually go into my projects with less of a like defined uh, intention. Hmm. So Interesting. Just, that's a very like a lot of these type of projects. It's go. I, it's more like uh, it, it was so different also from my regular uh, experiences in um, art making 
that it was just I was being and just it was I was experienced just simple being and absorbing what I'm what I'm experiencing. Um, so then I came back and um, we talked and because uh, Matthew is from Alaska and his work is very much in, in um, situated within the Alaska glaciers. Um, we uh, got a grant to actually go to um to Alaska together. Uh, he was on a sabbatical, so he was actually there physically. And I, I went there for a couple of weeks and we, um, visited, you know, the glaciers and caves and all sorts of stuff, which was, you know, just mind boggling to me. These are landscapes that, um, I, I, it's just not even humanly perceivable, I think, because there's just, they're not inhabited they're they're so related everything relates to something you know water snow like um they um everything it's everything's moving but it seems like nothing is moving hmm. so it's a different we, we time scale maybe that. absolutely did you, like you have did you yeah. get over your fear of nature at this point or was it no, uh... no, i'm still <laughs> frightened by the whole thing but in a way like super interested in it too yeah <laughs> Um, I, I, I find it frightening. Um, it's, it's like fascinating because it's, it's like you, you, you experience future there when you're standing on top of the ice field or when you're under like a glacier cave, it's like you're experiencing future, you're experiencing like past, it's the present and it's for the most part, it doesn't even care that you you exist. And we human are so self-centered. We think we have all these technologies, you know, all our, my tools fail to actually properly work in that environment. Oh, wow. <laughs> Which I was so unprepared for, like all the screens, you know, in that kind of light, you can actually see your screen. Yeah. They're cold. You have like, it's, it was such a humbling and challenging experience. <laughs> but, what did you end up doing? I mean, did you find solutions for that? Yes. Yeah. So we had like heaters and you keep like extra uh, batteries. And for the most part, you just have to go with it. You know, mm. it's there is not really uh, much you can do. So it's uh, the, the space. And I feel like if you are a natural geographic artist uh, or photographer and stuff, you're prepared for that world. But that world is not a human world. <laughs> right. Not made for media artists. No, no, with our, you know, uh, very sensitive device. Firewire cables and that kind of <laughs> right, thing. Yeah. Right. yeah. So basically, we just, uh, we, I, I gathered uh, spatial recordings and Matthew uh, gathered some of uh, the audio recordings and we came back. We so that so the final piece is an audio in an interactive audio visual uh, virtual reality piece where you as an audience, you will inhabit the two aspects of this landscape on top of the ice shield and, and also under the glacier space. And you it's it's very unassuming. It doesn't force you a narrative. It's um, very kind of meditative as well. But by your presence and by your movement in the space, by the way you look at the space, by the way you move your head, you create uh, music. So mm. there is a music, but then there are all these triggers that, you know, by the gaze that you have, by the the way you interact with the space, you um, you compose. So um, and you can stay in either one of these spaces anytime you want. You can come, go back from them, go down, go up, go like, you know, just it's a it's it's a, it's an experience that uh, mimics the I think like the, the, what the landscapes do. What are the, some of the audio tones like, like, how did you come to that decision along with uh, Matthew? Very good point. So, uh, the, the example that I sent you had audio, just the question. Yeah. I, well, I, we'll probably play some now, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> so it'd be so great. They're, you could tell us a little bit about how they sound. Yeah. So, so they're not necessarily, I mean, I wish Matthew was here and he could talk more yeah. about composition, but they're, they're definitely inspired by every uh, environment that you inhabit at any given time. So like the rocks, if like the rocks have in the cave, the rocks have their own sense of um, identity. Um, when you look up into the ice uh, formations, there is a different sense of sound that you have. Um, overall, there is this environmental also sound that, that changes, moves. Um, there is a lot of um, 
um, wind is one of the biggest <laughs> parts of you know that that landscape, and wind works in a very different way in like a closed space or up there on the ice shield where there is nothing. Like it's it's just nothing there, no uh, creature in a way. Although uh, I I think Matthew said that he saw a bird there, which fascinating <laughs> uh, I don't know what that bird did I, yeah. <laughs> the bird but, was not included in the final soundscape yeah. <laughs> no um, so it, it's uh, so that's that's the piece that's um, that's the piece we just finished and um, hopefully we would be able to actually you know tour it and um, show it but at the same at, uh, at, at least now uh, uh, who knows what happens with the COVID situation but we will definitely exhibit it at the Freyland Museum in the in spring of 2021 if things go well <laughs> oh, that's very exciting and what sort of reactions do you hope that people will have once they experience this piece uh, very, um, I, I think it's very different. Uh, one of the things about VR that's still super interesting is that that awe that uh, you would experience when you, you know, put the headset on, which I, I hope we get past that, right? Because mm -hmm. if it's always about that awe in the beginning of like, whoa, I'm in this space, it, you really can't stay with with the pieces, right? Because you just want the other experiences or just make the experience more interactive. This is a very different piece is that it's so anti-VR. It doesn't give you a lot of like, you don't even know what you're doing, what you're triggering and stuff. So you should, you, you figure it out at some point that you're, you're actually a participant in the experience. But um, it's, it's, it's a, it's an exercise in patience. Mm. <laughs> Yeah, but it's it's definitely it has a very um, meditative and also very experiential feel to it. That's that's what we hear so far. What's the longest amount of time you've experienced it in VR? Um, it's it's that's actually this is a I personally I I always thought oh wow I'm gonna get bored and everything, but time goes by so quickly um like each each piece would loop so you can stay as long as you want in there but like there would be about seven eight minutes mm -hmm. wow. of you know, this 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 the, the actual underlying sound in the video that uh, you but so it's it's interesting because the like in the natural uh, setting um time is a different you you have no reference of when the time is it? I mean, you see a lot of the clouds, cloud movements, perhaps, or the water down in the the cave. Um, but you can just be in it for fifteen minutes, even in one of the areas, and you you're just there. That's so interesting that like this new technology is reflecting the time scale difference in a natural yeah, environment as well. In a way, the natural environment is doing. That. Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting mirroring of that natural the experience of being in this natural environment. Absolutely uh, right. You're yeah. also working with Matthew on another project. Is that correct? Yeah. No. So, so that's not with Matthew. That's actually with another colleague of mine, uh, Luke Dahl, who does uh, motion capture and music technologies. Oh, and this is a piece that uh, right now the uh, the major title we have for it is experiencing embodied cultural practices through immersive media motion capture. And this is a big, um, longer term project that, again, COVID uh, interrupted our process. We, um, What we are trying to do with this very interdisciplinary project is to um, use immersive media as a, as a uh, as a way to capture cultural practices and dance performances and embodied practices of indigenous uh, communities. We, um, we have been working on this for not two years almost, but we spent like a year just developing relationships with a um, small community of indigenous Australian um, uh, called Pepe, Pepe, Pepe Minotti, um, which is near Darwin in the northwest of Australia. Um, it's a it's a wonderful um, community of uh, 200 people in a very remote area. They're super invested in cultural heritage and archiving their cultural history and ceremonies. And mm -hmm. these ceremonies are often in danger of loss for the future generations, mostly because, you know, the new generations might um, not being as, as engaged, the language is changing, and the 
they, uh, these dances, these ceremonies are such an integral component of indigenous, indigenous history and culture. And the dance, the Aboriginal dance for each um, clan is very different. It's ancient. Uh, it has such sophisticated uh, repertoire of gestures and movements. Um, like with the Pepe community, that when the men dance, like there is a, such a um, focus on the legs and knees. That's really interesting. And dancing is a form of storytelling for them. They, um, it mimics animals to like, you know, it, it, it relates to hunting um, with spears. And the songs are becoming a little inaccessible to general audiences and, and also to the future generation because, first of all, some of these dances are only performed in sacred places uh, and and very private. Um, generally, they're very inaccessible. Uh, the, the communities are inaccessible to general public. But one thing that about this project that was very interesting for us was um, I feel like I, at least, I don't want to speak... Um, uh, for Luke, um, I started this project thinking, oh, we're just going to go and, you know, we build the relationship. We go there and we make this piece that's going to be VR about, you know, the, the dance practices. And I, I kind of had some sort of like plan. And very soon it, it, it I, I noticed that that's just not how this project is going to go. Um, how did you? I, I'm just curious. How did you get in contact with this community in the first place? Was this through a, a, a grant or um, had yeah, you done research? So, so this is as part of we engaged in this project as part of a fellowship uh, that as uh, with the Institute for Advancement Technology at UVA. But the way we didn't know first what community to work with. In fact, we thought we we're just going to work with uh, indigenous communities of Virginia, which were closer and also perhaps more accessible. Um, but we, di we didn't have um, uh, a defined uh, community to work with. Uh, UVA has a very um, thriving uh, indigenous um, uh, studies group. And there are a lot of relationships and there are a lot of projects uh, with the Australian Aboriginal communities. And two of our, there, we have a, a Kalugiru uh, Museum that uh, is uh, is an ab Aboriginal museum, and it has a very long-standing and established relationship with several communities in the Northern Territory of Australia. Yes. So, through talking to the cur to the curators of the museum, they put us in touch, and you know, we talked to a few of the the communities. And the idea for this project was, we are not going to force anything. We're just gonna. Uh, it was very important for us to, you know, work with the community where we are like, these are the things we are interested to do. These are the things we think we can do. What do you need? Right. Uh, and. Um, it um, and and Pepe was just an incredible. So we went there the first time last year and visited like um, the community, talked to the leaders, the elders, like just talked about, like learn about the cultural history, and watch the ceremonies. Um, and it became this is a, a really interesting small uh, community. There's a wonderful female artist and matriarch Regina Wilson, who is the matriarch of this community. And there is a art center there. So we built a relationship. It, it was very slow. I mean, compared to what our institutions, you know, how we are bound to these grants and timings and. Um, it's just working with indigenous communities uh, does not fall into our traditional schedulings for projects. So that was that proved to be a reality very early. And um, I, I, I found I, I really always find uh, it powerful when artists or academics or technologists help communities address their own unique needs. And we from the beginning, we, it was very important for us to just not to give them the control. So they are equal partners and they, they decide what dances we should, uh, you know, capture and record. Uh, the second in the first phase, we went there. I captured um, the uh, some recordings of the dances of a couple of the dances 
And then uh, we were supposed to be going back this past May to capture the motion motion data, hmm. the motion capture data. So it was originally captured in on video or in, in 360? In 360, yeah. Spatial 360 and spatial audio. And then uh, meanwhile, uh, one of the leaders came to UVA and, you know, the, we gathered the oral histories. We, you know, just we we're gathering a lot of the information that to them it's important and to them that makes a sense. We I took the, the headsets to uh, Australia with me. So the younger generation explored it, the elders explored it. And they they all feel like that just the, the it can encompass the uh, the dance and the ceremonies in a way that p- pictures or regular videos perhaps cannot. So they're very excited about it. And they, um, there's also this um, uh, uh, interest in intergenerational cultural transfer in Australian, amongst Australian Aboriginal communities, um, that they, they would like to use this as a method for that. So as soon as we get a chance... Um, Basically, we spent like last year, especially just kind of thinking about the um, uh, how to establish these kind of relationships. There is a lot of there is a lot that has to do with trust, um, understanding these needs issues. And uh, when we go back, hopefully soon, um, uh, we would have uh, we would we would gather the motion capture data from like three, four dancers. Like the way the the way the structure is like they have dancers, they have the music um, musician, and then there is a song man. And so we have to do we have to do all of that, and then they would be all compiled in this immersive uh, experience. And I'm really curious about how, if you do capture all this motion capture data, how is that data passed on then? Is it more of a recording or as, as an instructional tool as well? That's so, yeah. So, so, so right now it's more like visualizing it. Mm-hmm. So we're working with another artist in, Char- in Charlottesville to uh, design the 3D models for the characters. And that's something that once we have, you know, we can finalize it with the elders. Everything needs to go with them in terms of how the visualization of the characters treatment look like. And um, one, one thing, given, you know, the timeline and the, how we need to move in terms of the needs of the community, whatever they define that's important to them, we have to uh, consider that. So if they think it's just going to be something that um, it's more of an experience that you just you, know, you learn more about the context of the songs, you watch the, the dance, and this this allows the motion capture allows us to get closer to the dancer, or go farther, or is it is it something that we need to build some sort of interactivity there in terms of like repeating the motions? Those are some of the things that when um, we have the data and we visualize it, and they you know they, they will guide us basically on what they want want us to do. Yeah. So it's all led in a way by them. Exactly. Yeah. It has to be owned. And you know, when some like the simplest uh, things that we, we somehow as media designers, we might not even think about like in terms of where, how do we store this? Where, who would ca- ha- keep the data? Um, in this project, it's like we have to create in- infrastructures where they are the ones who own the data. Like we, it's just not ours to keep. <laughs> yeah, I'm so interested in, in the idea of digital. Pre- I mean, I work a lot in digital preservation in my own work. And it's yeah. always a question. It seems like there's a bit of a paradox in the sense of like, who's going to maintain these systems for digital right. preservation? Is that something that you deal with in your work? Right. I mean, we have to deal with it. Exactly. And who maintains them? Right. right. I mean, exactly. that's another issue. And um, it's very funny. So, so um, what kind of preservation? Like, is it like, it's, it's interesting with this project is that we're not preserving, we're actually kind of we are going to keep something that's from present for future, right? Mm. It's just really interesting with the VR aspects of things because it's not like we are presenting culture, uh, preserving culture for sure, but it's not like a historical thing that right. we're preserving, right? Um, which makes it all more challenging in terms of who's the who is the uh, the the decider. Yeah, and who's the caretaker of this right. data going forward? Right. Yeah. And, you know, technology changes. Like since we started this, you know, Oculus has new headsets. The, the whole t- There is such a changes in this um, environment. So uh, who knows? <laughs> yeah, I'm curious to see how it all comes out. It sounds super fascinating. 
Yeah. And speaking of changes, I I, I want to talk about teaching a little bit too, since you did bring up, yeah. you know, how all these formats constantly change. And uh, since we both teach, um, what are the classes you're currently teaching or will be teaching in the fall? Absolutely. So I, um, I, I teach um, classes that have to do with like immersive media, inter- integrated, interactive media, projection design for theater um, and for or digital art for social change and that kind of thing. So depending on the semester, I might I might teach different courses. But in fall, I'm going to be teaching the projection design, which is so still confusing, I have to admit. Uh, <laughs> how do you do that uh, online? <laughs> yeah, how do you teach production de- projection design over Zoom? So I'm going to ask students to uh, get some uh, or just at least one um, mini projector because mm. either, I, I cannot think of any other way for them to actually be able to engage in this medium without having a projector connected to what they're doing, especially like, you know, when you go with Mad Mapper or Isadora and you're creating these interactive experiences with the, that require projection. <laughs> yeah, maybe Zoom theater. Maybe they could just do something in a Zoom room but, using the background. Yeah, which is, which being the, yeah, absolutely. But I also feel like, you know, this, I hope we're going to be off this COVID situation soon. And hopefully we're not going to live forever in Zoom. <laughs> Like so, are we going to prepare them for the actual projection? Right. <laughs> uh, yeah, I hope it comes back. You know, that's a big I, debate. I really hope so, yeah. And, you know, there are other challenges that I'm sure you're also facing. A lot of the students don't have um, powerful computers. Right. Um, or the software. So some of these softwares are expensive. And so we're thinking about maybe figuring out some remote access uh, solutions and which would help them a little bit, at least with rendering issues. Teaching media via Zoom is not just... Yeah, it, it's it's it, it's funny because people think, oh, you you teach digital, you should be okay. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> we have no control over these systems, too. Exactly, and it's just there are a lot of. Um, yeah, I was trying to give a back in spring. I was even trying to give a demo via Zoom, and it's just proved to be too much for the computer to even handle. Like Premiere, Open Premiere, three sixty footage, Zoom running. <laughs> But I think that applies even outside of Zoom. I always think that teaching new media art as a teacher is either like the best job in the world or the worst job in the world, depending on which version is out that week of the software you're teaching, <laughs> right? I mean, not that it's so tied to software, but you have to constantly be learning something new. Whereas maybe, you know, if you're teaching Shakespeare, you might be able to get away with teaching the same play a couple times in a row. No, uh, absolutely. And the other thing is, I, you know, we are... Students can have a really bad experience if they're the tools don't, uh, you know, uh, what is it like they don't they don't work the way they should. Mm-hmm. Um, like if, if the rendering is is really taking some time, if their computers crash, I feel like we might lose some really great artists in the future just because they just can't deal with it. And they have other things to address. So yeah, it's it's very interesting. Have you noticed trends in what students want to learn lately? Have you noticed any changes in the past couple of years in terms of what their interests are? Um, I am fascinated by how um, how savvy they have become in terms of visual communication um, uh, like methods. Mm. Um, but I'm also noticing that they don't uh, know the actual computer, like the tablets and the phones are making us um, more of a user than a creator. Mm. Like, you know, it, that that's one of the challenges, especially I, I taught uh, for about three, four semesters. I've been teaching freshmen for the first time in my life. And it was very eye-opening. Um, then, you know, when you get them as juniors and seniors and grad students. Um, so, be, make using the computer more as a tool and being more of a producer and making using it as like you I'm going to make you do what I want um, I feel like we are losing students um, to these tablets and that kind of power is um, is harder to achieve early on uh, but students I feel like are super interesting in uh, video making yeah have you noticed that that's I like have. so I don't know. It's very interesting, I guess, because we're living in such a... Um, I think it's because of TikTok, to be honest with you. 
That's true. <laughs> I have students that come in that have never made like a narrative piece in their life, but have made thousands of TikTok videos right. that are very well edited and, and, you know, with visual effects. But when you ask them to come up with a concept, it can be a little tricky sometimes. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And and they're much more savvy with shorter mm-hmm. per- uh, creations. <laughs> so yeah, it makes sense. And, and the tools have made us uh, be that way. I get, I, yeah, here, that's, that's very, that's very true. How about you? Have you noticed any type of trends? Yeah, I, I've noticed similar trends, but also a trend towards spectacle, I think, because of maybe because of the way people view art on social media. It, t- it tends yeah. to be that works that capture your eyes within half a second um, tend yeah. to be the kind of work that students want to create. And we, we spend a lot of time talking about you know, context and concept and, you know, research-based work and that sort of thing and why yeah. that's also important, you know? <laughs> it's great to I have things like exactly. Team Lab, but, you know, not everything can be Team Lab, I think. You are absolutely right. I think that's, you You nail it. Like when I said like the, vis- the visual communication, how savvy they have turned to be is like that. Like they know how to use it the way a corporate designer would do. Like they, you know, that kind of spectacle, you're absolutely right. Yeah, it's something yeah. that we try to focus on this podcast. And so, yeah, it's great to have you as a guest too, somebody who thinks in terms of research-based work and practice. Um, Thank you. Yeah, no, that's, uh, that's well, we, yeah, we're all trying to experiment, right? Yeah. <laughs> and on that note, before we go, we have a, a history of doing rapid fire questions here with our guests that are maybe not even related to your work whatsoever. <laughs> uh, so in terms of experimental uh, questioning, I'll start here with what's been your favorite quarantine TV show to watch? Oh, such a good question. Okay, so Chernobyl. Oh, yeah, that's a great one. Oh, that was fabulous. It's, okay. it's a nice uplifting <laughs> show for the quarantine too. Oh Chernobyl. Oh my gosh, you're right. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I couldn't not watch. Like you, it's just so captivating. So you work in theater quite a bit. What would the play based on your life be called? Oh, oh, <laughs> oh in between this, something about like belonging and not belonging and being confused all the time. (laughs) (laughs) All right. And in that play, which uh, celebrity would play you? Uh, Tina Fey. Okay. That's great. (laughs) Uh, You're a teacher. You teach at the University of Virginia. What was the last thing you learned? Uh, I am learning Spanish. Oh, are you using Duolingo (laughs) for that? You're doing it on your phone? Duolingo. (laughs) I'm also brushing up on my Spanish again, just because I feel like I've been stuck inside for so long. I need to make sure I'm still using it. Yeah, yeah, to learn, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Mona, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much, Gabe. Um, And I wish you the best in the fall with teaching and definitely keep us in the loop on what you're up to. Absolutely. Thank you so much for the time. And yeah, I I love your work as well. And I can't wait to see the new creations. I can't wait to see the play Something in Between. I'm confused all the time, starring Tina Fey. All right. Have a good one. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to another episode of State of the Art. I'm Gabe BC. Uh, You can always follow me at Gabe BC. Uh, If you have any ideas or suggestions or comments you want to relay to us, you can send me an email at gabe at thestateoftheart.org. We're happy to read some questions on the air or uh, communicate directly with you through social media at State of the Art on Twitter and Instagram. State of the Art is an at-art production originally created by Ethan Appleby. Uh, Wesson Stevens is our audio engineer extraordinaire and Vanessa Wilson is our producer. And I hope that they're all doing well and uh, I've been communicating with them a little bit and they seem like they're safe and healthy. And I hope Our audience is also uh, doing well and staying indoors and being safe. So we'll talk to you again next week. Thanks.